This episode of The Interchange is made possible by APSA and Timu. Venezuela is clearly having its moment in global politics and conservative media. The country's collapse is, as we're all told, all we need to know about the terrifying dangers of socialism. I can't recall the amount of times I've heard people say, you know Venezuela? The majority of the country is now eating rats. (laughs) (laughs) There's your ABCs. Your teaching moment about pie-in-the-sky socialism. But then again, I think, wait, since the turn of the century, every big country in South America, except Colombia, has elected a socialist president at some point. Socialists have taken power in South America's largest economy, Brazil, in its poorest economy, Bolivia, and even in its most capitalist, Chile. So did politicians, media... And all kinds of policymakers and researchers skip the link between socialism and development in these countries? Or is Venezuela genuinely the worst of what can happen? I think no one needs to care more than Africa because our development is at the center of every global conversation that is happening right now. And so to debate the motion, this House believes that African states ought to adopt socialist-leaning policies to accelerate their development. I have... Incredibly powerful debaters in the studio. I have Ansuya, who's a PhD candidate and retired SA schools debate team coach. She retired from everything, debating. She's retired in general, but apparently she was dragged out of retirement by the prospect of speaking with William Shockey, mm. <laughs> legal writer, scholar, and highly accomplished debater. In opposition, though, we have very strong contenders. Yeah, yeah. Neo Masweu, our philosophy <laughs> students, and favorite SNL lover, we also have Dumelo Bore, who is a keen traveler, a linguist, and a wannabe stay-at-home dad. I don't know True. who that's relevant to, but you know, <laughs> you're listening, and they this know. this is real for you. Then shout out, get in touch with Dumelo. But we also have our expert Kalifang Muileti, who is a PhD candidate in economics, student. He's a former IMF researcher. And he's currently a consultant at World Bank, not to mention that he's a founder of fashion brand Mibala. Talifang, I love that you always come through with context and definitions. Please take us into what we need to understand about this big topic. Oh, okay. Thank you so, so much. Um, I love this topic. So mm-hmm. it's, it's concerned with trying to understand the best system of organizing, distributing, um, and, and trading so that we have um, optimal economic and social benefits. Yeah. So I think that it's it's incredibly important and it doesn't matter whether it's in a, a, a developing country context or an advanced economy context. It's a debate that is relevant everywhere in the world. Mm. Now, um, currently, uh, the way that the world is organized is that capitalism is 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 um is the order of the day in most economies mm. of the world, and it finds its origins in eighteen in around the eighteenth century, mm. and it was very tied to um writers of of the age of enlightenment, who were basically basing their argument around natural law, and um how do human beings naturally behave. And what is this system that we can have in place that allows human behavior to thrive and to thrive in a way that the society ultimately thrives? Mm. So uh, this this led to coining a French term, I'm going to butcher the pronunciation, <laughs> laissez-faire, which, which means oh. let do. Mm. 
And this was also the basis upon which um, Adam Smith conceptualized his argument around the invisible hand. Mm. And he was saying that, you know, um, the, the quote is is that it is not from the benevolence of the butcher, mm. the brewer, or the baker that mm. we expect our dinner, but from their own self-interest. Mm. We address ourselves, not their humanity, but to their self-love and never talk to them of our own necessities, but of their advantages. Mm. So he was arguing that um, when we allow self-interest to thrive, it ultimately results in the best outcome for the society mm. because you can have entrepreneurial activity in sectors that people think they are best in and they are most passionate in mm. and, um, and all of that. Mm. And then on the other side... Obviously, the most, of course, the most, um, the most popular opposition to op- or to to capitalism was Karl Marx. Yeah, and he argues that essentially what capitalism does is that it allows the more powerful people to take ownership of the means of production and compel the less powerful people to sell their labor as mm. commodity. Mm. And he argued that ultimately this is exploitative. Because what the capitalist will do, who is in possession of the means of, of production, is that they will appropriate all of the supplies to themselves. And he found this particularly problematic because his argument was that productivity or surplus comes from the working class. So it's the working class that are productive, that produce mm. surplus, but it is the capitalist that ultimately appropriate it to themselves. Mm. So he uh, he argued that because of this, um, capitalism is inherently unstable mm, and that it mm, is going mm. to lead to constant revolutions. Mm. And then related to that, um, we have uh, socialism, mm. which is sort of at the opposite end of, of at the opposite end of the spectrum um, compared to capitalism, mm. which doesn't argue for individual ownership and individual um, freedoms, but rather collective ownership where everyone in the society has equal ownership mm. of the means of production mm. collectively through state authorities or through the state. Mm. And the economy is also centrally planned. Sounds amazing. Um, a very good um, context there. I'm sure all our, our debaters will agree. But now to get into the debate around um, whether socialist policies could help us accelerate our development I'm going to quickly run through the rules and then hand over to our speakers. We are using the British parliamentary format. We've got four speakers, two on each side. The first two are prop and the last two are op. In terms of speaking order, our prop one is going to speak first and our op two is going to speak last. Each speaker has four minutes to deliver their speech. The first minute is protected, but in between then and the final minute, the opposing team will be allowed to ask points of information. Are we all on the same page? Cool. And Sui, I'm handing over to you. Thanks very much. So I think what's important to note about an economic system is that it's about people. Mm. And the type of system that you pursue needs to affect people in a positive way. That isn't the case with global capitalism to a large degree. I mean, the poorest people in the world often live in places that are most resource rich. The richest country in the world, the USA, has people that can't access health care. The realities of capitalism 
are systems that are really damaging to individuals on the ground. And so when we talk about socialist policies, we're talking about policies that are about equality, that are about redistribution of power and wealth. And it's things like government-provided services, so healthcare, education, transport, uh, things like progressive taxation, for example, or even just in terms of how we measure economies, defining growth and development in terms of people as opposed to capital. So mm. talking about human development mm. indexes as opposed to just simple GDP, mm. right? And so the conversations need to be about people and how they are affected by economic systems. So I'm going to talk about two things. Firstly, up. that the structure of capitalism means that someone always wins and loses. Mm. And that's mm. not something mm. that we can always uh, stand for. And secondly, that when you propagate this type of wealth concentration and power concentration across generations, it means that Africa is always going to be mm. uh, the mm. place that mm. loses out. So when we firstly look at the structure of capitalism, by design, it tries to concentrate wealth and power. It, and what that actually means in practice is that you know, the decision-making abilities reside in the hands of sort of Fortune 500 companies um, and executives who get to make decisions that affect millions. Mm. And it's fundamental to people's existence. If you mm. think about what economics actually means, that's where you work, where you spend the majority of your day. It's whether or not you have access to health care. It's whether or not you can afford mm. groceries. Like Those aren't things that are flippant. And they aren't things that people have any type of control over. So it's really questionable that a system that undermines people's ability to dictate so much of their own lives is put in place and that keeps gaining power. And they're told that this is something that ought benefit them. Mm. In reality, we think it actually takes away all sorts of power. And that's something that it seeks to achieve, right? The most successful people within capitalism are those people who get to have the most power within a system. And so you're affected by things like global financial crises in a way that means your savings, when you've made really good decisions uh, to benefit yourself, have been taken away from you due to no fault of your own. Mm. Those kind of things aren't things that we should be protecting. Mm. And secondly, it's particularly propagated across different generations. So that means that people who start off with the most wealth are going to be the people who benefit most yeah. across different generations. And that's specifically important when you look at Africa because mm. the colonialist, colonialist project was not just exclusively about this premise of racial superiority, but it was also about using One Africa left. as a supply chain yeah. uh, to supply global resources, right? And this type of enrichment is particularly damaging when you realize that capitalism doesn't provide any kind of incentive to break out of that system. It suggests that that would always be beneficial, that that global supply chain would always exist that way. Mm. So we continue to exist in a circumstance where we give away our resources but don't benefit mm. from them mm. in the ways mm. that we could. And it's specifically important when you look at Africa as a whole in terms of the development prospects that we currently have. Things like public infrastructure matter a great deal, not just to how people operate, but also to, I mean, even if you want good capitalism, if there is mm. such a thing, um, <laughs> then even if you want that, you need public infrastructure for mm. people to be able to operate their companies. You need, mm. you know, reliable public infrastructure. But also, secondly, a huge amount of people are locked out of economies currently, and we need to change that. And the best way to change that is to try and get some kind of more Your egalitarian operations. Unfortunately, hopefully some of the points that you were going to make at the end are going to come through in William's speech. But for now, we move on to opposition speaker one now here, here. I, I, 
I do not want the debate to become about um, a, a binary between mm. capitalism and socialism mm-hmm. because those extremities will always exist and the debate will not advance. What we should rather be asking is what kind of alternative do we recognize as being essential on our side? We're not here to defend capitalism and neither we're here to advocate for socialism. But we're what we're going to try and show you extensively is that the harms that you get in the reality of the status quo that we have can be resolved with incremental changes that we do not think have been addressed in the first speech. So importantly, what we have to first start by doing is by contextualizing it as follows. Society as it currently stands in a global economy, a country like, say, for instance, Kenya, is incredibly integrated when it comes to the international political economy. Politics and economics are now the same thing. You cannot have political mediation without necessarily having some kind of economic resolution with that. What that basically means is that any kinds of economic decisions that you take will always influence politics and vice versa. And extensively what we're trying to show you here is that the problem therefore is not so much that the system is bad, it's that the institutions that we've enacted to actually regulate the social contract we aspire to live in has actually failed. So when we speak for instance about extreme capitalism, people not necessarily having health care. We say, for instance, that political parties have in many ways pandered to neoliberal economics. You can still have a capitalist economy that is well-functioning and aspirant, but at the same time has egalitarian values that is undergirded on a principle of social justice. We don't think we get a good enough case when it comes to Proposition 1 to actually justify why the regrettability of capitalism is something that needs to be ordained by the presence of socialism. Socialism in many ways does not unlock human freedoms because there is this inherent assumption unfortunately with socialism as much as I'm very sympathetic to to, to that ideology myself that Community-centered capitalism is not an alternative for them. We think on our side of the house that's something that that is necessarily true, even if it's necessarily a peripheral idea that not a lot of people are speaking about. But the second point that I would just like also to raise on our side of the house is that we also like to say that systems are in many ways relational. So... If you imagine a society that speaks about capitalism, we think at the same time we're saying that you value the idea that the individual in of themselves are sovereign and therefore need to have their own unique ways of mobilizing themselves. We can take the hit by saying that even in the worst case scenario, many capitalist societies have continued to disenfranchise people. But that can only be fixed when we actually allow for regulations and policy shifts to necessarily happen, not an overhaul of the system. Specifically, when we're talking about Africa, we don't think it's valuable for you to be talking about socialism for a couple of reasons. One, we don't think that centralization of power in of itself is something that we value. Socialism is a deeply toxic ideology for the one pure idea that political leaders, especially in post-colonial societies, have an inherent advantage of weaponizing ideologies and systems that might necessarily be used for benefit, while at the same time harming them and saying that, vote for me because this is the only person that's going to represent you, and in a way that represents your egalitarian values. We see it all the time when benevolent dictators use certain dog whistle terms, be they tribal, be they racial, and in this instance, economic, to basically advance their own issues. So we don't think if you want to expand a society that necessarily values democracy, especially in Africa, socialism is is the best way to go. We think 
incremental policy tweaks is something that we need to be talking about. So they have to defend why incrementalism is something that they do not value, while at the same time necessarily telling us why capitalism, even with fundamental policy shifts, cannot necessarily exist in an African context. Thank you so much for that speech, Neil. I'm going to hand over to the proposition speaker two to close the proposition case. William, here, here. The very idea of community-centered capitalism is a contradiction in terms. What Ansu explained in her speech is that structurally, capitalism is designed so by the means of production, society's collective resources, that which everyone participates to build a more fruitful and productive society is privately controlled and appropriated by a concentrated few. If that is inbuilt to the system, we think that, try as you might, you're never going to reach an adequate stage in which you can try to give capitalism a more human face. Because the truth is, the very fact that we have to strive to give capitalism a more human face only suggests that capitalism's face is not human at all. So, let's respond to what Neo says exactly. So, what Neo says is that what we should rather strive for is a gradual incrementalism, using our institutions to progress to something more just and more egalitarian. The question we ask is, what are we progressing towards? We think that it's our position that that progression should be in the pursuit of more socialist-leaning policies, that the pursuit of those more socialist-leaning policies, even if you might not graduate to what might describe that be described as actually existing socialism, is going to achieve precisely what One you want. The next question to ask then is, well, why have those institutions failed in the very first place? And the answer is, the nature of capitalism is such that If you are motivated by the logic of accumulation, then you are going to, as a capitalist, try to ensure that every single institution in society is motivated, driven by, and surfaces that logic. We would argue, for example, that the state capture that is so ravaging South African society isn't some you know, anomaly of society, but is inbuilt into the logic of capitalism. We think that corporations have an interest of capturing the state, be it democratically by bankrolling specific politicians to pursue their interests, or be it undemocratically. But what Neo says, which is most important in his speech, is that socialism cannot unlock freedoms in society. He says that it's necessarily dictatorial and necessarily autocratic. We don't think that is true. We think that the nature of socialism and the way we would want to progress it and why specifically we think that Africa should be the designated revolutionary agent to lead this effort is precisely because we think that African visions of society are fundamentally motivated by a collectivism. This idea that democracy can't just be this limited choice of a few candidates every five years, but should be about expanding democracy into every aspect of your life, about engaging collaboratively in the workplace, in the home, and in the community. And we think that crucially, what Africans can show the world is it can end this false binary between the individual interests and the collective interests. It can demonstrate that I am because we are and we are because I am. And what Neo fundamentally fails to understand is one of the crucial reasons why we are seeing the extreme capitalism that he describes, a capitalism that is marked by high inequality that is marked by globalized finance that is marked by speculative capital is precisely because every single time in society when we fought back against capitalism capitalism fought back in turn that when you look at the social democratic societies that he praises and lords that rose in the 1950s after world war ii those societies were achieved by workers who were waging class struggle in the factory gates and they were pushed back against in 1970s when neoliberalism started to, to rise which is why we think that this is a fight that must continually be waged. It's a fight that we cannot give up on, and it's a fight that especially Africa has to undertake. Thank you for that speech.
I'm going to hand over to our final speaker for the debate who's going to close the opposition case and the entire debate. Dumelo, here, here. I think as a point of departure, the most fundamental question we need to answer in today's debate is one that speaks to the development in Africa and whether or not socialism is compatible with that development. So in this speech, I'm going to try and answer that question using a multiplicity of action, like a, mass pl- a multiplicity of resources, mainly now speech, also a little bit of nuance I'm going to like um, add on to that speech. Moreover, I'm going to rebut a few things by using comparative examples that are, are like very much realistically um, they're set in the real world. By this, I mean to say we're going to look at other global South countries and their implementation of socialism and whether or not that's actually helped um, development in those particular countries. So as that is a point of departure, we have to necessarily look at kind of what would be the longest standing um, socialist government in South America, I would assume. I might be wrong. When we look at Venezuela, right? When Venezuela, uh, Venezuela, when Juan, I forget his name, when Chavez um, came into power, what necessarily happened is the bedrock of socialism in that was that, in fact, he had to build a personality cult around himself and then try and redistribute that sense of power. What does this in a sense mean, right? It means that the the reason that of like any socialist government is one that's primarily based in a personality cult, right? So the concentration of power... not yet, right? The concentration of power that old proposition doesn't want, in essence, in essence, is kind of birthed in the system that they want to achieve, right? We don't think that's something that's necessarily important, specifically when it comes to things of development. Moreover, when you look at when the African state canon was birthed into existence, it wasn't birthed into, in terms of like an actual... Um, it wasn't birthed in terms of actually a socialist state. It was rather placed into a capitalist state. This might be problematic and might have its own faults, right? But the transition between capitalism and socialism, right, is something that is really fundamentally important because then we have to reorientate all our economic structures. We think that's something that is a lot of labor and we can't just romanticize this idea of socialism and think, oh no, it'll fix all our problems. Yeah, yeah, we have to look at to the actual, not yet, right? We have to look at the actual manifestation of this policy, right? Because if Ansuya wants to focus this debate on people, let's look at how these people are, inf- are affected by this, in essence, by this policy, right? And we when you look at when you look at the fact that there's a personality cult or romanticization of social of socialism that happens specifically in Venezuela, and there's an instance of concentration of power that allows uh, that allows for the corruption that has existed in Venezuela to like to come about. What in essence happens is that you have these people then who have to eat rats under the socialist government, and then for Venezuela becomes the poster like the poster boy of what socialism is. Right? We think that's fundamentally problematic. As a comparison, not yet will right. As a comparison, we think what's really important is the fact of like um, uh, collective. Uh, where was it? Collective. Collective capitalism in the sense that we give people individual, like individual autonomy, and they're economically capable, and allows for them to, in essence, aggregate their needs and their desires. We think that's particularly important because the infusion of politics and economics is one of which, right? The political structure is one that did like can determine the nature or the trajectory of the economic structure. We think that's in essence something that is important, like something that's in essence endemic to that to that um, system. But moreover, we think institutions are far better under capitalism, right? We think that's particularly something that we need. To speak to you in this debate Okay Will Okay so Mm -hmm. all of the examples you listed These countries took a democratic road to socialism And experienced a massive pushback from capitalist countries Notably the United States and United Kingdom The reason this will be different now Is we are realizing the rise of socialist sentiment In those countries as well Look at the rise of Corbyn And look at the rise of Sanders We think the conditions are different now Okay. Thank you. Continue. Bernie isn't president. Jeremy Corbyn is the leader of the opposition. He doesn't hold power. Let's be realistic in the way we look at the world, right? We have to look at like uh, the people who 
actually hold power and the hegemony, like the hegemonies that exist, right? Cool. There's a rise in pro, like socialism. Is that rise going to be sustained? We have to look at the current world as it stands, right? And currently, the hegemonies that exist, and you might be a lover of socialism, but we have to look at the people on the ground and what the world actually looks like. And the world looks like capitalism, right? And the fact that we have to try and tweak and adjust this capitalism in such a way that it is bespoke for the context in which it exists and actually helps these people. Kind of wishing about the socialism doesn't help these people. It doesn't speak to the reality and the lived experiences of these people. No matter how many statistics you speak about how Your these people... Your time is up. Thank you so much. Uh, fiery debate, but before we get into unpacking the big ideas that were shared in this debate, Talifang, help us to just clean it up and understand what the big contentions are that we need to think about. Okay, um, I think many of the of the key issues were pointed out, but I think there's several several points that um, I think are also important to keep in mind mm. when we're looking at the comparative advantages and disadvantages, capitalism versus socialism. Mm. Firstly, there's this idea of consumer choice. Mm. And the argument is that under capitalism, um, production is demand-led. Mm. So production depends on um, on what people are buying. Mm. So there will always be maximum consumer choice. Mm. Whereas when you have socialism, you have um, a state-controlled economy, mm. and then the state only produces what they think they the deem, people yeah. need, mm. and then that that assumes like absolutely no information asymmetries mm. that the state is all knowing, and they'll be able to correctly all the time identify what people need, mm. and we know that that's not the case. And then the other issue is is this issue of economic growth. Is economic mm. growth maximized under socialism or is it maximized mm. under capitalism? Mm. Mm. Um, proponents of, of capitalism sometimes argue that um, capitalism is that one system that will allow mm. you to have maximum growth because, number one, um, incentives are maximized, mm. individual incentives. And then because, um, number two, you can have a bigger scale. You can have economies of mm. scale in your production. So if you think about, like, for instance, Amazon and the efficiencies that they have mm. in their delivery system, they were only able to achieve that because of economies of scale. Mm. And the same argument could apply to your Uber and all of these platforms mm. that we're seeing. And also the other argument is that growth will be more likely under capitalism because capitalists are better situated to direct research and mm. development. They understand better. This is an argument. They understand better where the world is going, where it might lead, and what investments in technology we should be mm. making. And and of course, that doesn't always apply because you've seen that there are some states which are as equally or even better at identifying um, growth trajectories and where mm. R&D should be invested, mm. um, notably, notably mm. China. And then mm. there's also um, monopoly power. So in a capitalist system, you're prone to have a market structure that is inherently mm. oligopolistic or mm. monopolist. Mm. And that can sometimes lead to abuse of power. And in South Africa, we've mm. seen that um, collusions among bakeries mm. and, 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 and. Um, so if you have socialism, um, you, everyone is on equal footing mm. and no single firm 
has mm. the power to abuse the market and abuse mm. consumers. Mm. Um, and then another disadvantage that is sometimes cited under socialism is this idea of of, of red tape mm. and, and inefficiencies. So if you have the state that is controlling the entire economy and it's deciding who produces what, when and how, then you have a lot of red tape and bureaucracy mm. and application forms and the system is all mm. offline and sisselanchin mm. and all of that. Mm. Um, but where do I stand? Mm. So I think, so f- for me, b- both of them, you know, my, my view is a little bit unexciting. <laughs> <laughs> but both of them have their respective merits. Yeah. And so I think, um, I think there is a, there is, um, a utopian system that we can get towards. There is, what I call an optimum, um, an optimum combination of the two okay. that we can get towards, okay. where depending on context, depending on it can be economic context, it can be political context, it can be country context, depending on context, also depending on the sector, mm. we look at um, uh, uh, we imagine the outcome that we want, and we think about how we can marry the advantages of capitalism mm. with those of socialism so that we can achieve the maximum mm. um, uh, outcome. And I can give you an example in mining. Mm. So in, in Southern Africa, um, one of the success stories that we've had in mining is Botswana with mm. their diamonds. Mm. And one of the reasons why they've been able to do that is because um, government went to DBS and they were like, you want to mine, we want development, let's get into partnership. And then they, they, they formed what they call the Botswana. Not a, mm. not a very flowing name, mm. but yeah. So it's DBS plus the Botswana mm. government and it's own 50-50. Okay. So within that company, DBS is pursuing their self-interest. Mm. And then their self-interest is, is being guided by the Botswana's government's mm. developmental objectives. Mm. So ultimately you have the best outcome. Mm. Um, you know, like, Bringing this closer to home, there's, there's been this long-going debate in South Africa yes. about should we nationalize or should mm. we not nationalize. Mm. So nationalization would be us um, essentially passing a socialist reform and keeping things the way they are would be us being happy with the status quo of capitalism. Mm. And my solution for 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 South Africa's um nationalization question has been this there's no capacity in the state right mm. so um uh if 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 you nationalize who in our current government is going to be in charge of m- running these mines and making sure that they run efficiently and profitably and all of that and we can look at SOEs to just see government's track track record with running companies so for me the optimum solution there um is not to nationalize yeah but it's to change the way we allocate mining rights, mm. you know. So you say to Anglo Platinum, mm, if mm, you wanna mm. mine here, then this is the corporate social responsibility that we're giving you. You must build a speed train. Mm. If you think about it, 
that's a it's a it's a socialist idea because you're heavily taxing them. Mm. But you're not taxing them and then collecting the tax revenue yourself as government because you know corruption and all of that. But you just give them an obligation um to roll out public William, you have a huge problem with that. Yeah, I have, I have lots of uh yeah, I mean there's, there's there's a lot to say. There is a lot to say. I mean there's a lot to say and obviously the drawbacks of conversations like this is that it's it's very difficult to condense I think a yeah. lot of the hotly contested debates mm. um into something that can be very cleanly waged through. Um uh but I think yeah, I mean w- what I'd like to say is I think um just two quick points. I think number one Often in these debates, I think there's a lot of terms and concepts that we take as being naturally occurring phenomenon in society. So the idea that markets should govern human interactions, the idea that growth should guide how we think about human development, and the idea that human beings are naturally self-interested. Uh, I think people often forget that those ideas don't just exist, that I think they're crafted in service of a particular ideology, which in turn advocates for a, a given system. And I think that it's important for us to unpack what those terms mean and what exactly, what arguments are buried in, in their usage. Um, uh, but secondly, as well, to, to add to that, uh, I think that there, there's also as much dispute about what does it mean for actually existing socialism to be in place because I think that there's, there's a lot within, within people who are advocates for most socialist leaning policies. A lot of people would denounce what is the standard go to example of the highly bureaucratic, highly rigid, uh, Soviet communist and dictatorial example. And they say, well, we don't think that is, uh, a socialist system as interpreted by its key advocates, uh, Marx and Engels being the most pronounced. Um, and I think that there's, there's, there's lots of debate about, well, what does it actually mean for something to be socialist? We know what it means to be capitalist. It's been the system that has been prevailing for 400, 500 years. And most of ourselves have throughout our lives found ourselves within. But when it comes to imagining a socialist future, what could that look like? What do we think it's not? What do we think it is? As well as being willing to admit that a lot of what it might mean is something that we don't know and whether or not it's still worth pursuing in spite of us. But I mean, a direct challenge like. to that and a direct challenge to the proposition case in general is why should we imagine, um, why should socialism be the highest um, sort of point that we want to reach in our imagination of Africa's future because normally when we advocate for socialism and I'm bringing it back to f- philosophical justification for socialism it's because we want to break free from western markets but it's always because we're embracing eastern markets looking at USSR as like the you know the the rise of sort of scientific socialist thinking and even governments like Tanzania and Senegal you know not trying to reproduce you know, a Karl Marx socialism per se, but imagining that notions of a more Eastern style of governance would be what's appropriate. Why can't we imagine something that is truly independent, that has nothing to do with both socialism or capitalism? Yeah, okay. Yeah. Now you can go. So um, there is an interesting philosopher at UJ. His name is uh, Dr. Chadwin Harris. And two years ago, he released a, an academic paper called External Validity. And in it, he basically uh, questions the idea of bicycle lanes in Johannesburg. He says, Park Star went to all these nice cities, Copenhagen. Mm. He went to Paris. He went to Berlin. And so all these bicycle lanes and thought, hey, 
perhaps behavioral science would suggest that us having these bicycle lanes would change people's habits and people start cycling more. And really, that is the epistemic question of um, African economic systems in 2019. The fact that we are very privy to the idea of exporting or importing rather um, a lot of these ideas that do not necessarily work for us. And so the reason why many times, especially I was saying to Dumela earlier today that I think the new counterculture has been capitalist because it is very attractive to say that you're socialist today. But the reason why that is true, I think, most of the time is because of the fact that USSR and China and perhaps Cuba to a certain extent were also vehemently um, sort of like expelled by the, the global international, which was led by the West at that time. And therefore, they were always sympathetic to liberation movements. Mm. And I think our idea most of the time of socialism does not come in many, in many times from um, a sense of maturity. I think in many instances, there are um, a lot of questions to be asked about the validity and moral justification for the many atrocities that capitalism has committed, environmental, economic and social. Um, but whether we're still able to actually imagine a world that is um, authentically African is um, is something that I don't think we've discussed enough. Mm. And I would also go so far as to say that the idea of Ubuntu mm. or collectivism is not necessarily compatible with the idea of socialism because ontologically speaking, those two things are fundamentally different. I think collectivism in the African context does not necessarily mean having some kind of centralization of power. This is the same reason why strategically we spoke about the point of yeah. community-based capitalism because you can still have empowered communities that have in many ways paternalistic members, but they're not at the same time saying that you want to have one benevolent force. And I think that's where we mistake in many Many instances, the idea of socialism in comparison to what we necessarily need on the continent. But I think just to yeah. give Prop an opportunity, I, I mean, you, I, I want you uh, to allow you to, to to respond to Neil. But in that response, if you could also include, and uh, I'm not sure if Ansuya could also come in here, the the idea of the comp, you know this planned economy ultimately resulting in, in an enslavement of the individual, mm. because yeah. when Neil brings it to the ontological issue of uh, collectivism versus you know planned sort of uh or enslavement of individual liberties are we saying that's compatible to um who we are as african societies or are we saying something else i mean uh, just to say something very quickly um i think that there's been this misconstrued idea that socialism necessarily means centralized power at the hands of the state um i think that a more generous interpretation and a more authentic interpretation of socialism as not only a critique of capitalism, but also as advocating a feasible alternative is in the word itself. It's about socializing society's collective resources so that it's in the power of those who live in the society. And I think that, I think Neo is incorrect. I don't think it's true that um, the idea of Ubuntu is counterposed to socialism. I mean, Marx himself said the free development of the individual as being the condition for the free development of all and the free development of all being a necessary condition for the free development of the individual. That sounds a lot like I am because we are and we are because I am. And I think that's one thing that I think 
were we to try and seriously consider the question of building an alternative is trying to end this false conflict that we fashioned in saying that in an individual pursuing their own interest, that must naturally be antagonistic to the interests of the community within which they live, as well as in the community pursuing the interest collectively that is naturally counterposed to the, in, in the interests of the individual. And I will admit, we haven't, we haven't seriously thought about what does Ubuntu mean and how can we realize Ubuntu in practice, but I think it's a question worth considering and one compatible with socialism. Is a fundamental change possible given Africa's context, I mean, Ansuya spoke really powerfully about um, the structure that capitalism has created, the global structure that um, necessarily means there are winners and there are losers. And contextually, Africa is losing and will probably continue to lose. Um, But you look at bigger conversations like the World Economic Forum in Africa and um, when you say increments can happen or slight changes to the way things are done, can that even happen? Um, so my, I was in Kenya a week ago and the one thing that I kept hearing all the time is the idea that our economy is growing, but we're not seeing any, any change. Um, our wages are still stagnant. Um, and I think if, even when you go to other economies that aren't necessarily capitalist, you still, still hear the same thing. But the problem with the developmental model that we have taken in, 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 in Africa, and I think the global south to a larger extent, is that we are at the whims of global capital. So, um, there was an interesting model again. I'm sorry to be very theoretical right now, but like in first year I did this module okay, and I was, I've always been very obsessed with this module. It's mm-hmm. called import substitution, right? Mm. And that's honest, honest to God, the best model this is the only time when I'm going to be crediting the NP government. That was the best thing that they ever done, I think, in their time of 48 years of government, where they basically, due to economic isolation, developed a lot of market industries that became global, globally competitive. This is why ESCOM became the biggest electricity supplier in, in southern, mm. in sub-Saharan Africa. Because there was a recognition, I think, in many instances that we need to have a conversation about what kind of developmental model do you take? Are you going to have one that is inverted towards the people themselves while at the same time prioritizing the idea of capital? Mm. Or are you going to be reliant on big name countries like China, India and the United States to be investing in your country? Here's an interesting question. Yeah. I look at um, 4IR, 5IR, and I think to myself – the way the world is progressing um, is moving towards an inevitable s- socialism of mm. sorts, or at least a, a a capital a revolution against capitalism because of economic disparity, but also the shared economies that you know technology is creating is allowing for inclusivity. But at the same time, capitalism is op- uh, technology is operated by global capital i mean you, you find that the healthcare has progressed so much that a child doesn't have to die from most polio but there are still children who, who die from polio and it's it speaks to the fundamental issue i think that proposition is bringing to the debate when they say yeah incremental changes policies csi but fundamentally if the system of ownership itself is not shifted, then you still don't have people benefiting from the very best of what's being created in the world, even 
um, you know, in 4IR5IR. But I'm going to give Khalifang to quickly give us a, uh, a closing word. And then I'm going to allow everyone in a word or two to tell us what Venezuela means for them to close this debate. Khalifang. Okay, so I think the other thing that we must do in this debate is um, distinguish between self-interest and, and greed. Mm. So capitalism, um, proponents argue for it because they say human beings are, are, are self, self-interested. Yeah. But capitalism starts becoming harmful because sometimes the self-interest spills over and it becomes self-greed. Mm. So I think that's important. So there are people who can be self-interested but not greedy. Yes, yes. Can you, if you're building the biggest multinational corporation at the behest of labor? It's, it's also, uh, it's also subjective. It's a very thin line because mm. I might look at you and then I might say, oops, now you're no longer self-interested, but you're greedy, you know? And then I'm calling you a social entrepreneur. Yeah, yeah. Um, so there's, there's that. But um just to touch on what you're saying, also the other point that I want to make is that I think when we try to, um I think the reality is that the world is becoming globalized. Mm. That's the reality. And I think that whenever we try to um imagine Africa's development, we should always think about it in the context of an increasingly globalized world. What makes sense in terms of making sure that from that connection point of view... You are thriving. Yeah. Yes. Because it's, it's, it's all good to say this is where we want to go, but does it work in terms of global trends? But should we care if what works is determined by bullies? Not, not, not so much, um, not so much to be bullied, mm. but to be in a position where you're the one who is now benefiting from mm. global trends. Mm. You get what I'm Manipulating saying? Manipulating the system. Yes. But um, <laughs> very, very final thing I want to say 4IR yeah. Universal basic income yes. yes So this is why I was saying that The best system for me Is an optimal combination of the two mm. So you allow capitalism To continue with its, inf- with its Fourth industrial revolution But then you have safety nets You have social nets So you have um, a proper level Of universal basic income So mm. that we all still have um, some income and we can consume and economic activity continues. What does Venezuela mean to you, Ansuya? That's a tough question. Um, I think it's placed in a global context, basically. Our economies are changing and they're mm. changing in fundamental ways, which gives us an opportunity to really interrogate what we want out of our economies. And I think it's mm. important that we look at both systems and the possible compromises that could be made to benefit people. William. I think this talk of global trends is important. I think we should understand global trends as being not an autonomous force, but as something that is dictated first and foremost by those who have power. And I think the world today is two camps. There are people who believe that power should be in the hands of the many, and there are people that believe that hands should be in the power of the few. And unfortunately, the world today is one in which the power is in the hands of the few. And try as you might, no matter how hard you try to vest it in the the hands of the many, they will fight back, and they will fight back hard. And that's what Venezuela represents for me today. Mm. Neil. Neil, Neil, Uh, don't quote a philosopher. No, I'm not going to quote a philosopher. I'm just trying to think. Um, I I hadn't thought about this one. What did Heigl say? Um... I think Venezuela is um, probably the most unfortunate outcome of something that was going to be great. Um, because I think at the heart of it, um, 
Hugo Chavez was not only a charismatic leader, but he really represented the best of what the anti-imperial agenda in the world aspired to to have. Um, it's just a damn shame that it's been circumvented by a lot of factional power interests that do not have the interests of those people anymore. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. For me, it's kind of like, um, I would say Venezuela is a bit of a case study, a case study in learning and adapting because I think it would be like, a, like an example would be like what Zimbabwe was, like Zimbabwe's land expropriation bill is to South Africa. It's not in essence a template, but rather an example, like a template to which you can learn from and to adapt and make it better. Can I share my opinion? I think Venezuela demonstrates what can happen if we leave implementation to the very worst, most anti-intellectual, authoritarian, criminal people in society. Um, socialism can have horrendous consequences, but the same can be said about capitalism and any other ideology that exists in society. And for me, that's a question that African leaders would do well to ponder on before they simply accept status mm. quo. Thank you for listening to this debate exchange episode nine. I've really loved this episode and I hope that um, you've got a lot to think about. Do share with your friends, your family, share your thoughts with us. Until next time, that was the interchange. This was another thought-provoking debate made possible by APSA and Simung, amplifying the voices of young people. The Interchange, seeing Africa through a youthful lens.